You're listening to WERA LP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. This is Real Fiction, and I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry. Today's episode is the first in a three part series on independent book publishing. I decided to devote programming to small presses because they are publishing some of the best fiction and nonfiction work today. To better understand how independent book publishers are filling the void and competing with large New York City-based publishers, I've pulled together a diverse group of authors to discuss their work and experience. Haywire Books is based in Richmond, Virginia. This is a fresh new voice in independent presses. And John Seeley is my first guest who is both the author and publisher. I invited him to talk about his writing career and to help open this special real fiction series on independent publishing. And later in this episode, we'll hear from other Haywire authors, Patricia Henley and Mark Powell. But first, John Seeley has a new novel, The Edge of America. It takes us into the fast-paced scene of 1980s Miami. The characters are risk takers in the world of money laundering and international drug dealing. John's first novel, The Whiskey Baron, published in 2015, was critically acclaimed. He's been called a writer to watch. John, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Hello. So you've written a new novel and launched a literary press. Mm When did you start writing The Edge of America, and at what point did you realize publication for the novel might take a non-traditional path? I started working on the book in early 2009, around the same time that I started working on my first novel, The Whiskey Baron. Both books are about characters in uh, experiencing a kind of business collapse around them. The first novel being about a bootlegger's whiskey empire, and this new novel being about a uh, businessman with CIA ties and his um, the collapse of his of his kind of intelligence operation, and um, right. it was they were both kind of responses to the 2008 financial crisis. And um, my career, and I think a, a, probably a theme of our discussion today is I think pretty typical, and um, I think it demonstrates a, a gap between sort of expectations and reality among you know aspiring authors. And so I uh, went through a pretty traditional route. I got an MFA, finished in 2008, had a novel, sent that out to some agents, and they said, oh, this is too quiet. We can't do anything with this. So then I was working on The Whiskey Baron and said, okay, well, this I'm going to make this a loud novel. I'll make it a crime novel. Um, sent that out to some agents, and they said, well, this is too depressing. So I found a uh, Hub City Press is an independent press in South Carolina, and they focus on the Southern experience, and they primarily focus on first novels. and so they picked up the Whiskey Baron, put it out, and did pretty well for a small press and got a lot of you know positive critical reviews. And an agent found me and said, hey, what you got? And so I gave him the Edge of America, and we revised it a little bit, and he sent it out to New York and came back and said, well, I think you know it's kind of a wash. It didn't sell, but you seem to be caught between two chairs. It's sort of literary. It's sort of thriller, but it doesn't fit nicely in either camp. Wrote another book, had another agent, kind of heard the same response for that book. I wrote another book, got to talk to another agent. And he basically said, hey, listen, man, you you know, you're sort of kind of working in the mid list. You're working in this non-specific genre. You're not really in a marketable lane. Fiction is just an incredibly tough sell. I don't 
you know, I mean, I don't think you're going to sell your book. And really kind of looked at it and said, well, there's a dearth of small publishers, independent publishers. Um, there are there are a lot of them and there are a lot of good ones, but some bigger name authors are coming back to independent presses for, for some, of the, some of their late in life books and taking spots. And I said, well, there's a demand. I mean, there are, at least there's a supply. I knew a bunch of other authors kind of in my same boat. I said, well, I'm, you know, I've got a whole drawer full of books. I'm going to start a press and put it out there and see if I can get sort of a farm team together. Um, and, and, and to use a baseball analogy, right? Like people kind of not in the major leagues, but who have talent and books and, you know, just try to create a little small thing. And so that's what, that's what I did with um, the edge of America was the first sort of experiment on this new small press venture. I want to ask you about something you mentioned um, a moment ago. An agent told you that your story was too quiet. I've heard this from other authors. What, what do you, how do you interpret that? What, what does that mean? Is it, <laughs> does it really mean that they don't know how to sell it? Well, in, in hindsight, that first novel, which I wrote in my MFA, had the hallmarks of a lot of first novels, which was, it had some problems. And I think if I were starting my career in the 70s or 80s, probably would have found a publisher and started a career. But I think what they meant is it doesn't have je ne sais quoi that you need for a runaway bestseller. Okay. And I, so, I mean, it was a family drama set in small town, South Carolina. It had, you know, nice poetic prose, but it was a sort of a small domestic story. It wasn't a big capture the imagination kind of kind of book. Um, there was no murder and crime or anything that would like kind of lift it out of the uh, ordinary. So um, I don't think they were necessarily incorrect, their assessment of the book. I think it was just a challenge of where publishing is. And we have so many writers out there and publishers, I think, are struggling to find a way to break through the noise. And so they're trying to publish a certain kind of book that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for quiet literary novel. Yeah, I think you said it perfectly earlier that one of the things we're we're trying to do and you're trying to do is measure expectations and reality of writers who are hoping to publish and assess the health of the publishing industry today. And in an essay you wrote for the online journal The Millions recently, you wrote that the publishing industry has changed since your first novel and that none of the old rules apply. And you offered several pieces of advice, and I'd like to ask you about a couple of them. One of them was number th number three, go to graduate school or not. And I read that as really a warning about debt. And we know that there are MFA programs all over the country. They are growing in number. And a lot of authors are left with just piles of debt and makes it really difficult to get a career mm -hmm, going. Mm -hmm. is, is that similar to what you've been finding? It is. And um, to be honest, I, I'm so far removed from being 22 and the world is so different that I don't know what the best counsel is, but I think stay out of debt is great advice for any young author. So um, when I did my MFA, it was at a large land grant university and I was able to get a teaching fellowship that covered my tuition and gave me just enough money to sort of scratch out a living. So I didn't have any debt. And that, that's a fine way to spend a few years because you get a lot of writing done and you build a community and all the other types of things. But I think once you start adding student loans into the equation, this becomes more of an actual financial investment rather than an investment in time. 
And there is absolutely no return on an investment in an MFA as a, as a financial investment. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a tough tough balancing act, right? I mean, I think the the, the skill sets you can learn are you know the, the what it does to your mind are good skill sets to have for being a decent human being. And I think big corporations actually need more of that kind of skill set of being able to have empathy and understand what it's like to put yourself in the brain of another person or to write with clarity. But at least my experience and what I gather is the common experience. MFAs don't really, that's not part of the curriculum, telling you how to market yourself with these, and telling you how to market yourself with these skills. It's, um, you know, it's, it's really just time to go right, um, which is a luxury and it's nice to have, but I, I would absolutely say don't take on debt to do it. There's another, another aspect of your essay that really struck me um, for a few reasons. And you, you advise writers to take a cold look at New York publishing. And what I love about that is that you are a writer who's had some great success. You don't live in New York. You're living in Richmond, Virginia. And not only have you published a second novel, you have started a press that's uh, outside of the New York bubble. So what is your impression of New York publishing and what writers should take from that scene that's happening primarily in Brooklyn. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I want to be careful not to cast it as this monolithic thing, but one perception I have in, in the essay I mentioned was it feels debut driven. Like they invest in big first right. novels and then don't really want you for your second book. And I think maybe a more precise way of thinking about it is they invest in books rather than authors. Meaning if you come up to them and you have a nice loud book that can be marketable and be a runaway bestseller, they'll do, they'll do something with it. They don't really, I think what is, would be good. I think what would be good for a young author. And I think what we all want is a publisher to invest in the author, not the book to help you build, you know, your, your profession. So I, as an example, one of my favorite writers uh, is uh, Emily St. John Mandel. And she has, I think what is a tremendously enviable career and that her first three books were published with Unbridled, which I think is a very good independent press. And I don't know what her, I don't know her personally, and I don't know what her editing process was like with them, but I imagine they kind of, I think those guys that edit Unbridled are very good, and they put out a lot of good books, and they probably, you know, gave her some good counsel on how to build a narrative, how to transition between scenes, and just some, you know, the stuff you learn from editors when you're young. And I think those three books kind of primed her for, you know, now she's working at the top of her game. But she got this sort of that that runway with Unbridled to futz around under the radar and then bam, now she's a really good writer and kind of a major force. What you're describing is kind of a boutique experience right. where the where the independent press treats the author like a human being and they're focusing on the author's professional development rather than just um, going by the book, mm-hmm. which is what we're seeing in a lot of the trade press. Right. So that gets to back to what you have created, which is the independent press Haywire Books. And we've talked about some of the voids in the marketplace. What void are you hoping to fill with Haywire Books? Well, my base is in the Southeast. My first book came out with Hub City, which is a press, but they also have a bookshop that is a member of the Southern Independent Booksellers Association. It's a consortium of regional booksellers. And so when that book came out, I went on tour and the indie booksellers were a primary driver of that book's modest success. 
And that's the network that I'm hoping to tap into and I've been trying to tap into with this press. I think every independent publisher needs a, a niche. And right now there are several small presses that are focused on Appalachian fiction or first novels or whatever other niche, but for a literary novel in the Southeast that is not Appalachian uh, from a mid-list author, that, that niche, is there's there's very few forums for it. There, there, there are a couple of good presses. They have limited slots. So that, I knew a bunch of authors down here. I mean, I'm friends with some authors in the Southeast and that's kind of the niche I'm starting to fill. Well, it's a really exciting and inspiring development because the catalog that you've put together for your launch is impressive. And I didn't mention, but I'll mention now that we'll be speaking with other authors from Haywire as we do a deep dive into independent publishing. I want to go back just a second to something that you mentioned. You said that the Southern independent booksellers were uh, key to helping you find this niche. And what I find fascinating right now is that while the large trade press is sort of losing its way, we keep seeing headlines that independent booksellers are thriving, continuing to do well. So is there, do you see a kind of synergy or a building, a growing relationship between some of these new small presses and independent booksellers Mm -hmm. supporting each other? Yeah, I think it's a natural fit. I mean, we're both kind of Davids going against the Goliath. I mean, uh, uh, running an independent bookshop is a tough business. Um, When you start doing the math of how much money do they make per book and how many books do they have to sell to have the over, you know, to make enough to have a physical store. I mean, it's kind of baffling how they make it. I mean, that's, that's a hard business to, to, to be in, but I think they do it through community. I mean, that's the, you know, at least the, the tag around independent booksellers is you're building a local community, you're shopping local, investing local. And the best, certainly the best stores that I know are the ones that you know have some loyal customers who, when you, show up as an author with a book, some of these customers will come out. Strangers will come hear you speak based on the promotion from the bookseller. I think the um, world of independent presses is somewhat similar in that I'm not trying to boil the ocean here. I'm just trying to carve out a little little space, a little community of uh, writers and readers. And my hope is that if somebody reads one book from Haywire Press, they'll take a look at another book and you know they'll say, if you like one, you'll probably like others. Yes. And you have, and what you said earlier is that you have kind of carved out a a niche. And so let's, let's just talk a bit about your novel and how it relates to some of the other stories that you've pulled into the press. Uh, The Edge of America kind of seeks to make sense of the world by examining the international drug trade in the 1980s and government's attempt to eradicate the Colombian cocaine network. And in the novel, There are a number of CIA memorandums and transcripts tracking financial movements of the main character. I I would first like to know, how did you research these high-level communications? Three three types of research. Um, You know, on the ground, go to South Florida and just sort of hang out, get a feel of the place. Two, library research, reading books. And um, there was a great book called Legacy of Ashes by um, Tim Weiner that uh, was a history of the CIA and kind of a sort of a very critical history of the CIA that came out while I was working on and researching this book. And a couple of other uh, books might, I might point to are, um, there's a CIA operative named uh, Robert Baer who wrote a, at least one memoir. So reading those kinds of 
accounts kind of gave me a flavor for what it was like. And then the third kind is tried to met a few people who had been in the intelligence community. They can't really and, and won't really talk too openly about what they do, but, you know, able to get a few mannerisms. And, you know, as soon as they find out you're a writer and you start prodding them a little bit and they, um, it was, you know, one guy in particular I'm thinking of kind of, you know, very viscerally shut down and changed the subject. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, just to try to get some mannerism. So um, that's, that was a, the three prongs of my research. But um, for those memos in particular, what struck me and, and what I, what I invented in my spy world, um, you know, you have James Bond on one side, the super, super spy action star with gadgets and gizmos and physical fitness and everything else. And you have George Smiley from John Le Carre on the other side, who is sort of frumpy and slow moving and working in the slow grinding gears of a corporate bureaucracy. And I kind of went with the other, the, the slow corporate bureaucracy kind of CIA, because I felt like that was more true to my experience of just working in the world. Most spies are not James Bond. Most of them are kind of just right. quiet civil servants. It, my experience in corporate America is they have memos and that kind of documentation for everything. Um, so I just made those up because it seemed like there would be a corporate rec record keeping or a, uh, a government record keeping. Well, you describe it as slow, but the the pace is, is pretty quick when, mm -hmm. when the reader is moving through it. And uh, it's got a lot of international intrigue. And there's an early scene in the novel I'd like to ask you about. It's takes place in Amsterdam and the main character Bobby West is with the drug kingpin Alexander French and they're discussing plans to move drugs and money and I love the scene because after they have a discussion about their agreements and arrangements about how to move how to move the drugs they pop a an opioid pill just to kind of toast it. And it's sort of, sort of done offhandedly, but I have to tell you, I thought that was really clever. And I hovered on that scene for a bit because it sort of seems to get to your vision of how to make sense of the world. And what I, what I took from that was, well, goodness, look, opioids were so innocent back then, and now they're a big threat nationally. So I'm just, as a reader, I'm, I'd like to know when you work through these novels and you start talking about the novels and you're talking to readers, how do you relate, how do you relate these, these issues from the 1980s and what we're seeing in the present? I mean, I always go back to Emily Dickinson's quote about tell the truth, but tell it slant. And I don't think it's, it's certainly not original to me to say that, you know, all historical fiction on some level is, you know, some reflection on the present. And um, so I mentioned at the beginning that I started this book, as a response to the um, 2008 financial crisis. And my research really was around economics and the savings and loan crisis and sort of what was happening in the, in, in the go-go 80s and continued through the 90s, then led to our collapse in 2008. When you start down a path as a, as a novelist, um, you know, you just start asking questions, you start exploring things and just go on tangents. And there are these little happy accidents that just sort of feel right, like, you know, oh, Right. This little thing echoes like this is nice. This, you know, so there was a while I was working on this book, for instance, the um, Boston Marathon bombing happened and turned on the television. And you see police and tactical gear roaming house to house and they've got this city under siege. And it's, this is really eerie. And, you know, so I made up a I have a scene in the book that kind of has a little bit of that 
you know, Orwellian flavor. Um, and that's, you know, somewhere around there is when I decided to, you know, consciously move it to specifically 1984 to give it that little, you know, Easter egg. I love when you said that there's a happy accident when you're writing and that some of these narratives should be told really kind of on the slant. But what I find really refreshing about what you're doing and independent uh, authors are able to achieve is that they can sort of they can move in a direction that feels really authentic and and frankly independent. I receive so many galleys and marketing pitches that pair the narrative of the story with some real world application, and it's incredibly on point, more so than I think it should be. But I think it's the fear of a big publisher uh, hoping to find a place in the market. So as you describe it, it's just, it feels like you're, you're writing from a position of a little more freedom and a little more experimentation. Would you agree with that? I think that's certainly fair to say. Um, so I was on a panel with some, um, mystery novelists recently and the way they talked about their books, they really were very conscious of being in a particular swim lane and, you know, trying to move, you know, move through this particular vein and they got to me and you know in the discussion and I kept having to raise my hand and say well I feel like I'm kind of in a sandbox rather than a swim lane like I'm just doing my thing over here like to be honest would probably be more profitable and might have a more successful career if I can pick a lane and go into it but there's the joy of writing I think outweighs the uh, the the career side of it for me so there's easier ways to make a buck I don't know what the answer is, but I have to believe that for authors, they would prefer to write in the sandbox and not have to focus so much on the marketing of their book. But here's what I want to ask you about next. The independent publishers are on the rise. We said that in the beginning of the the discussion. What do you think they're doing? What do you think publishers are doing right? And where is there room for improvement? And by improvement, I'm what I'm referring to is when I hold the book and I look at it, I want to be able to to see the book and not think, oh, this is something that someone self-published or published on a on a uh, substandard press. And when I received the the books from Haywire, I couldn't tell the difference. So you're a good person to talk about how you how you created your your product, really. Well, and that's the part of the exciting thing about being the publisher of a small press is you are making a thing. And my theory about books is that there is so much other entertainment noise in the marketplace that people who want to read a book and want to buy a physical book want it to be a made thing, want it to feel good, want it to um, be something that they will keep on the shelf. I spent a lot of work trying to find a good printer I do print runs rather than print on demand. Invested a little bit into a few things like the covers have a, a soft touch material. They're a little bit thicker and they have the soft touch, which is kind of a velvety, you know, just thing that just makes it feel like this is a nice durable book that somebody could put on their shelf and have a nice collectible. So that's kind of my theory around this this niche business is that the people who are the readers who are left like a tactile thing. So as you... As you move forward, how how are you balancing writing and managing a literary press? Because 
because they're both full-time jobs and they're both exhausting. That's true. That's true. I mean, if you ask me in a couple of years, we'll we'll see how I'm holding up. Um, what I th- think is I'm looking to stay kind of small with the press. I'm looking to put out two to three books a year. You know, so that's a book every... I mean, I launched with mine in September and that Patricia's Hummingbird House in November and Mark's um, Firebird in January. Then our next title book from an author named Heather Bell Adams, and that's coming out in July. And then uh, I'm kind of weighing, you know, what does fall 2020 look like with all the election news? And, you know, should I wait till winter 2021 to put out the next thing? So I think scaling back and just trying to stay sort of small. No, I think, and I think you anticipated the second part of my question is what is your vision for Haywire? And it sounds to me like you want to keep it uh, small and quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's which is definitely probably a good way to which is a, probably a good way to go when you're launching a new press. That's definitely the case. So I uh, used to work for a newspaper and was on the auto beat, uh, and so I went going around interviewing car dealers. And this um, this real old guy who who owns a large chain of car dealers in the, in the region I asked him about his secret to success in business, and he said, "Oh, you know." <sighs> What I would tell a young person is don't try to expand too fast because you're going to get wrung out and then you have to start over. And I've seen that pattern in other business people that I know where they, you know, expand too fast and you have to start making compromises on something. I mean, something's got to give. There's only so much time, energy, space and money that you have. And so I'm trying to just say, well, let me just start here. This is what I can do and do well. You know, if a ton of money just starts flowing in and I could hire somebody, then, you know, we can talk about the the next stage, the next stage, but here's what I can do myself. Right, right. right. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we will be in conversation with your authors um, from Haywire Books in this special series on independent publishing. And we look forward to that. And I wish you all the luck in the world because I think what you're doing is uh, much needed and really exciting. Thank you very much. And thank you for the conversation. This was fun. Yes. Well, my guest today is John Seeley, author of The Edge of America and founding publisher of Haywire Books. John, thank you so much for coming to the program. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERALP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from Haywire authors, Patricia Henley and Mark Powell. Welcome back to Real Fiction. You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. This is the first episode in a three-part series on independent publishing. Next, we'll hear from authors Patricia Henley and Mark Powell. You might notice some differences in audio sound. This is because we're recording with authors from across the country and even an author based in Europe. 
Enjoy the rest of the program. I'm joined now by Patricia Henley, author of Hummingbird House, a National Book Award fiction finalist in 1999. The 20th anniversary edition was just published with Haywire Books. The novel explores the secret wars of Guatemala in the 1980s through the eyes of a North American midwife. Patricia Henley has written short story collections, poetry, a stage play, and numerous essays. She taught for many years at Purdue University and now lives in Maryland. Patricia, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's so inspiring to see a novel stand the test of time. I'd love to know, when did you learn about the Guatemalan Civil War, and what was the spark for Hummingbird House? Well, I've gone through different cycles of being a political activist in my life. I'm 72 years old, so that's a few activist cycles. Um, And I followed the war in in, um, Guatemala and and the other wars in Central America in the 70s and 80s. And um, just peripherally, you know, reading about it in magazines, um, newspaper articles, and um, I, I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala for two months in 1989, thinking that maybe I'd write some short stories set there because that's all I'd published so far. One of the things I discussed with John Seeley yesterday of Haywire Books is the, the fact that he likes to find fiction that helps make sense of the world. And Hummingbird House is really a perfect book to shed light on the publishing world, past and present. Uh, When I was researching your body of work and this book in particular, I read that your agent wasn't sure how to sell this book, and you ended up going in your own direction to get it published. In fact, the first edition was published by a publisher named McMurray and Beck. They were they were an independent press, no longer in business. And then your book ended up being nominated for two prestigious book awards. Can you talk a bit about that experience? It's true. I had an agent who told me when I was in process, Patricia, nobody's interested in Central America. Hmm. <laughs> and I, she told me this sitting in a cafe in New York um, as we were sealing the deal to work together. And I said, well, this is the book I'm passionate about, and this is the book I'm writing. And I sent it to her when it was finished. And um, she did try to place it with a New York house. I don't know exactly what her strategies were, but she didn't succeed. But that took two years, Lori. And um, it was just a very difficult time in my life because of that. I mean, I'd spent years writing this book, researching and writing this book, and she wasn't able to place it. So I took it back finally. And three weeks later, I placed it with McMurray and Beck in Denver. I think this will inspire a lot of writers who are struggling with where to place their book and concerned about how it will be handled. Um, What's interesting is that the 20th anniversary edition is also with an independent press. In fact, we're having a special series on uh, independent presses, um, so we can analyze what's what's happening in the publishing industry and make sure that the the gems that are being published don't get don't slip through the cracks. So you have now published your book with two independent presses. 
What is your general impression of publishing in today's climate? And I'll remind listeners that you have taught for many years at Purdue University as a writing teacher and still have writing students. Uh, what, how, how do you help your, your students balance expectations and reality? And that's a really good question because all writers have the dream of selling a book to a New York house, making some money, having a New York house, put the big bucks behind you to get the book out in the world. All writers have that dream. It's inevitable that you will, um, but it doesn't happen for everyone for a variety of reasons. And um, the small press world is thriving. If you go to the Associated Writing Programs Conference, they always have a book fair and it is enormous. And you see all the amazing work that's being done by the small press editors and publishers. The books are beautiful. The covers are beautiful. Um, So much fine work is being published by the small presses. And there's no shame in going to the small presses. Well, that's something, I mean, you touched on something that I asked John about yesterday, and that is the quality of the, the actual physical product. And I, what, one thing that impressed me about Haywire Books Catalog as I looked to see what was coming out is you really cannot tell the difference between a quality independent novel or book with something that the New York trade press is putting out. I feel like the gap has really narrowed. Do you feel that as well? I think that too. And I I think that especially when I go to the AWP book fair, because then I see it in all its glory. And I think it's because of the rise of just all this incredible technology we have at our disposal to create beautiful covers and beautiful books, you know. There's something um, else I want to ask you about with the independent process, and it gets to the approach that they take to analyzing stories and figuring out where they can go in the world. There's something that I hear a lot from authors, and it's it's a question that they get from agents and editors. Who gets to tell the story? Um, It's become very sensitive, and there's even a hashtag used by literary agents Um, hashtag own story when they're seeking manuscripts. And what I thought would be really compelling is to hear from you um, how how you view this question being posed to authors, because in the opening scene of Hummingbird House, you go into the point of view of indigenous beggar children. I'd love to know if you were ever challenged by readers or editors about writing a story that involves foreign character point of views. I have not been directly challenged. However, I think that might be one reason why the book was not um, accepted by a a New York house. But a related issue is that you're a writer who's praised for developing a sense of place. And I'd like to know, what is the responsibility of the writer when creating a story? Particularly when you go into a place like Guatemala, a very complex political world. Well, your responsibility is to be as accurate as you can be, and that takes work. You're not going to be able to find out the things you need to know by Googling them. You need to go there, and um, I think many writers don't understand that. I I think our world, certainly in the United States, and the world at large feels sometimes like it's becoming so homogenized 
you know, you can go to a Starbucks just about anywhere in the world. And to, to find the details you need to use to really to recreate a place accurately and authentically, you have to go there. What has been the reaction of readers to Hummingbird House 20 years ago and now again today that you've, since you've released it back into the world? Well, my recent launch date was only November 5th, so I'm still, I'm still absorbing the initial responses and hoping there will be more. Of course, people, people who've read it before seem, seem very happy that it's out in the world again. I'm um, hearing from book groups who want to take advantage of Haywire's offer to give them a discount on multiple copies, and then I have offered to Skype with book groups. So I'm kind of excited about doing that. I love doing that. But in the past, when it came out, I, I was really pleased, first of all, that I, I heard from medical people who, who who praised the book for having gotten the medical experience right, because that was a big concern of mine, as you might imagine. And then, um, as I said, people in adoption circles have been um, really happy to read it. And it reflects something about their experience, apparently. Patricia, I read that you had some advice for writers, and it had to do with finding kind of a wordless kind of headspace to, to just be quiet as you're thinking about your writing and you're initiating a new writing project. What, what did you mean by that? Many years ago, I read Dorothea Brand's book, and I think it's called Becoming a Writer. It was written in the early to mid part of the 20th century, but sometimes the best books come from a while back. And uh, she suggested writers seeking out wordless recreation, wordless uh, music, and that really resonated with me, and I started doing it, and I think it's it's good advice because writers are always seeking their own voices. And it feels kind of elusive when you first start out writing, you're thinking, what does that mean, finding my own voice? And it's very hard to find your own voice, especially in the world we live in today, where we're just bombarded with sound, words, ads, podcasts, you name it. And if you do clear out at least some time in your day, in your writing life, for silence, that will allow your own voice to emerge. How do your students respond to that suggestion? It depends on where they're at on the path, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, there are some people who are just going to say, eh, I'm blowing that off. That's old world, that's old that guard advice. I imagine that that would appeal to the the introverts in the class, though, it sounds it, it, it resonates with me as I listen to that, that advice. <laughs> Some people who are really serious about writing will say, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try it for a week or I'm going to try it for a month, you know, and it, it's just an interesting experiment. I'd love to know what you are working on next now that this hummingbird novel is back into the world and finding new readers. Where, what, do, what are you obsessing about or where are your writerly interests falling these days? I'm just finishing a manuscript of micro-memoirs. These are short lyric essays, most of them are quite short, that um, loop all the way back to my childhood, through my marriages, uh, to the present day, the manuscript is called You Could Live Here, and they are short pieces that deal with living solo and embracing that and aging. 
Uh, I'm really excited about this manuscript. I'm just I'm just pulling it together and getting ready to send it out to publishers. Well, I want to thank you for coming to the Real Fiction program today. Um, the novel again is Hummingbird House is published by Haywire Books. It's a new independent press based in. Richmond, Virginia. We've been talking with their authors this week about the new catalog, and we're excited about all of the books. Patricia, thank you again so much for coming today. Lori, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. joined next by Mark Powell, whose sixth novel, Firebird, will be published in January by Haywire Books. Mark is an English professor at Appalachian State University. He has been a Fulbright Fellow in Slovakia and a National Endowment of the Arts grant recipient. Firebird takes us into the world of political operatives involved in the 2014 conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Firebird has been described as a thriller with a conscience that will change how you see the world. Joining me from North Carolina is Mark Powell. Mark, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lori. Happy to have you. And when I received Firebird and read the description, i just amazed because this is one of the most timeliest novels I've come across recently. When did you start writing this story? Uh, well, I actually started writing this in 2014. Um, I was, my family and I were living in Slovakia at the time, and we were next door to Ukraine where the Euromaidan revolution had just started. Um, I went to Slovakia with absolutely almost no knowledge of Ukraine, at least not politically, but I just got fascinated by what was taking place. And being in Ukraine gave me this sort of perch to watch these events unfold through uh, basically European and Russian media in a way maybe I couldn't have seen it in the United States. Uh, I got, as I started to dig into things, I got really interested in shell gas fields there. One of the last great shell gas fields in the world is in Eastern Europe. It's largely untapped and whoever taps it, of course, is gonna be worth billions of dollars. Um, I started looking into, this is it's just so, it's really strange in a way because the figure that got me interested in this was Rudy Giuliani. So I started writing this really large, sprawling conspiracy novel about Rudy Giuliani, who is leading this energy firm. And this was true at the time. He was a principal in a very large Houston law firm. And they were trying to sort of destabilize Ukraine so that that gas would stay in the ground. And there were some plausible things about it, but it was largely a sort of conspiracy theory. Um, hmm. It's strange that a lot of it has sort of played out in a, uh, a sort of lopsided way. When did you first learn that? that I, I didn't know that from reading uh, anything about the book. When did you first learn that there was a Giuliani connection? A source in... Ukraine let me know that in 2014, that okay. Giuliani was on the ground in Kiev and was also on the ground in Bratislava. And I started getting really curious about what was going on. And at the time, the U.S. State Department was really pushing something called the Shell Gas, Gas Initiative, where they were trying to sort of open up what we would kind of call like two-thirds world countries to U.S. Uh, fracking interest, essentially. And so I started sort of putting these things together and I heard a comment from another source and 
this was a, a U.S. government source there, and he was sort of enraged, and he said, there's only two people in the world who have an interest in a destabilized Ukraine, Rudy Giuliani and Vladimir Putin. And he immediately sort wow. of, yeah, he didn't want to talk about that at all. Um, you know, people kind of blurt these things out and then want to sort of walk them back. But I, start, I thought a long time about that comment, and I just started digging, and the intersection of Russian interest and American corporate interest, you know, through Giuliani was these shale gas fields and the idea that, um, you know, if this Ukrainian shale gas stays in the ground, prices stay high, you can't, um, the market can't be flooded, it benefits Rosneft, you know, the giant Russian firm, it benefits the various American firms. Well, the connective tissue is really intriguing here. And this is a good time for me to ask you about um something I noticed about the the body of your work. And it's something that you really care about. You like to focus on the consequences of global events in isolated communities. And I want to remind everyone that at the moment you're living in North Carolina, you teach at Appalachian State University. So you found these connections. Can you talk about how you how you want to convey how people in kind of overlooked places are affected by these world events? Right. Yeah. You know, I'm, for better or worse, I think I'm a Southern writer and to some degree an Appalachian writer as well. But one thing that always has troubled me, Lori, about a lot of Appalachian literature, at least historically, is that it looks at these communities as if they exist in these little pockets that are never touched by the larger world. And that's just simply not true. I mean, besides world events, whether they are, you know, global financial collapse or the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan, the world is intimately connected and there's reverberations that happen through small communities, just like they do, you know, through major population centers through DC or London or New York or wherever it may be. And that's, what's always interested me. I'm particularly interested by people who leave these small communities, go out into the world and then come back, how they're changed, how they're affected, how the communities are changed. So I guess what interests me most as a writer is looking at places that feel hyper-local and hyper-insular, and then kind of looking for the ways that that isn't actually the case. Um, Firebird is maybe a little less so because a lot of it does take place in sort of these centers of power, but that traditionally has been what has interested me most as a writer. Well, this is the kind of story that, that readers love, and I, I would love to know at what point we were working on this novel, did you feel that it might take a non-traditional publishing path. And this might tie into the idea of what an Appalachian novel or a Southern novel is supposed to be. Right. And yeah. you, you, you take a different perspective. So was that a mismatch when you, when you thought about how you wanted to publish this and where you wanted it to be published? Yeah, it was, it was a bit strange. So I'd written this really long novel that dealt with everything in Firebird and largely what my previous novel, Small Treasons, deals with. And I realized I had sort of two different stories. So I kind of fractured them. And my last novel, Small Treasons, which was with um, a major publisher with Simon & Schuster, was sort of um, more, I guess you would say, literary fiction. So there was a particular place for it to go. When I started writing Firebird, I realized that I wanted to do something a little different. I wanted to encompass maybe more global events, something that moves with a faster pace and is less concerned with maybe the inner psyches of the characters. Not to say that it isn't, but a little less navel-gazing than what I've written before. 
Yeah, that, let's let's hover on that a bit because you're you're right. I wanted to ask you about your 2017 novel, Small Treasons, which, as you said, was published by large publisher. It had wonderful reviews, glowing praise. Um, so you're saying that 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 narrative was more of an interior character driven novel, uh, as opposed to Firebird, which is a little bit more propulsive. Right. And, you know, my agent and my editor were all sort of saying, this is, you know, kind of not the lane in which you write. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to do something different. And uh, John Seeley, I think, who you've interviewed as well, was at the time sort of knocking around the idea of launching this press. And I just thought this would be the sort of perfect, perfect venue because I could have control over it. If it doesn't fall exactly as a literary novel or as a thriller, if it falls somewhere between the two, I knew that a smaller press would be more open and more flexible to, you know, let me try something different. Yes, I've been speaking with John and Patricia who round out the Haywire books catalog. I think the mission of Haywire, as I understand it, is to kind of try to make sense of the world through through narratives. And, and so he saw something in your and your story that fit the the mold. Do you feel like you had more creative control and more um, input on the final editing process by using a small press? I certainly think so. And John is a an absolutely fantastic editor, particularly on the line level. But for larger sort of issues, he really let me sort of do what I wanted to do. Um, the story goes in maybe some unusual directions. There's some switching of point of view that happens. I don't think a traditional larger press would have been comfortable with that necessarily. I may not be giving them enough credit, but I think it took someone willing to take a little bit of a chance, um, you know, to, to appreciate or understand what I was trying to pull off. Firebird is so timely. The narrative just matches up so explicitly with the headlines we see. If you had gone with a traditional press, the time to, you know, the time it takes to get the book into the hands of readers is, is a, a very lengthy process. Was, did it, the phase to publication influence you at all? Yeah, yeah, that was certainly in my mind. And in fact, John and I had thought originally um, we were going to put the book out in the summer of 2020. But when we started to see Ukraine popping up again and again into the headlines, we both felt like we should maybe push the timeline up, even if that means less time for pre-publication press, um, simply to seize on the moment. I mean, you know, it's kind of impossible not to look at the news now and not hear Ukraine within a, you know, a couple of minutes. That timeline's really interesting. I'll remind everyone, uh, we're speaking with Mark Powell, the author of Firebird. It's published by Haywire Books. It actually will be published on January 7, 2020, if I have that date correct. Yes. Um, I would like to know, um, you teach English and creative writing at Appalachian State University. And what what do you like to pass on to your students? What kind of, what is your, your teaching style? What do you like to convey to your students? That's a great question. Um, many years ago, I saw one of my writing heroes, Don DeLillo. He was speaking at the 92nd Street Y in New York. And someone at the end of his reading in the, the Q&A said, if you could sum up your entire career in just a few words, like, what are you trying to do? Which is sort of a ridiculous question, but also just fascinating. And DeLillo thought about it for a few moments. And then he kind of leaned into the microphone and said, I want people to pay attention. And I, I thought, that's exactly what I hope I'm sort of imbuing into my student, students, this idea that 
you know, we write fiction, we read fiction closely. Really, it's just an exercise to help us pay attention, closer attention to the world, not just to text, not just to our own work, but sort of to life. So I hope there's sort of this process where we are developing these skills where they're a little more attentive to the world, a little more attentive to other people, to their own thoughts, uh, emotions, all of these things. I know that sounds a little bit grandiose, but ultimately that's what I hope they take away from my writing workshops. I, you know, when you have students and you teach these courses, you know, every student is not going to be a published writer. You know, many students won't even write fiction when class ends, but if they walk away just a little more focused, a little less distractive, a little more attentive to the world. I feel like that's, that's useful. That's worthwhile. That is amazing advice and amazing perspective. And that reminds me of something that I, I heard you say as I was doing some research um, prior to this discussion. And I, I found a statement that you made really compelling. You said that you write from a position of confusion, not of certainty. Could you explain Band on that a little bit? Sure, yeah. You know, I just, I feel like I never know what I think about a subject until I write about it. Um, there are particular things that will lodge in my head. You know, we, we have these experiences, Lori, where something happens to us and it has resonance, emotional resonance, and we know why, right? Like if we've had a fight with someone or we've lost someone we love, that it's explainable why that bothers us. But there are things that we experience Um, or speaking for myself, I should say, things I experience that they have this resonance, they have this power, and I'm not sure exactly why, why I keep, my mind keeps um, going back to them again and again. Those are the things I want to write about because I'm trying to figure out why that has resonance. I'm trying, I guess, to figure out what I think about that. Um, And often I don't arrive at any answers. I always think of that wonderful Rilke quote where he says, you know, the, the process of life is replacing the wrong answers with the right questions. And I, 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 I keep, sorry, I keep sounding so grandiose in these answers, but um, that's kind of what I'm trying to do personally. I'm just trying to make sense or a little more sense of the world through this. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for coming to the program today. Remind everyone that we're, I've been speaking with Mark Powell, the author of Firebird. Uh, it will be published by Haywire Books on January 7th, 2020. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Real Fiction. This series on independent publishing will continue next week on Wednesday at noon on WERA-FM 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. All episodes are archived at realfictionradio.com and on your favorite podcast platform. And you can subscribe to updates on the Real Fiction website. Next week, my guests are debut author Sion Dason, an American author living in Spain, and local author Paula Laser. Thanks for listening.